Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And uh, not a whole lot of new information out of these verses. We're really going to be recapping some things that John has already said. But it's going to help us really see what it means to be a Christian and to get rid of some of our false notions of what that means. So I'll, I'll start with a little example. When I was a kid, I had absolutely no idea how physics worked, apparently, because I got hurt all the time. And so I would do these different things, and whether they involved jumping off of high objects or whatever it might be, and get hurt. And so I remember one time helping my dad put up the Christmas lights, and I went down to the lowest part of the roof, and I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to jump, and I'm going to hit the ground, and I'll be fine because I'll just roll like a ninja. You know how ninjas do with their free running and their rolling. And so I got to the edge of the roof and I thought, okay, you're a ninja. Your last name is Lee. You can do this. And so I jumped down and I hit and my ankles were already burning and I fell to the side before I thought, and now roll. And it just didn't happen. Okay. Another time I was a little kid and we had this large marble dining room table. And I thought that if I got on one side of that table, I could jump to the other side of the table. Okay, like a frog. So get on all fours and leap across to the other side of the table. Now, I got up on the table when my parents were not looking, and I leapt, and little did I know, there was this chandelier right over the table. So it's instantly, bam, and I cut my head and I go to the doctor. Okay, that's what it was like. Or, and don't judge me for this, because I know you've done the same thing. When you were a kid, did you ever take an umbrella and get on a high object and jump off? Anyone? Of course you did. We've all seen Mary Poppins, right? So I'm getting my umbrella and I go outside and I'm like, just a spoonful of sugar and I jump. And my ankles are on fire and they're burning and it just doesn't work, right? Because science. And I was never afraid as a kid to be on an elevator because I figured if the cable breaks, I'll just wait till it gets to the bottom and jump, right? You can time it. Five, four, three, you see the levels coming up. Two, one, you jump, you're totally fine right? You could just hang on to the roof or something and you would not die. Everyone who ever has died in a plane crash just didn't jump at the right time. And so that was kind of my, my thinking as a kid. Now, I had assumed all these things and I had assumed them wrongly. And because of that, it led me to make bad decisions. I had these pre-assumptions, these presuppositions, and it led me to make these bad decisions in the same way many of us wrongly presuppose some important things about Christianity. What does it really mean to be a Christian? Being a Christian is not about being a good person. Being a Christian is not about being a nice person. Being a Christian is not about being someone who never stirs up controversy. Being a Christian is not about being someone who generically believes in God. The devil does that. Uh, Being a Christian is not about you doing your best for Jesus, any of those kind of things. And so what this text is going to do is it's going to strip that away and it's going to give you these evidences. What does it really mean to be a Christian? So let me pray for us and then we will dive into this text. Almighty God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We confess that we are broken. And because of that, we make idols in our hearts. We find our joy and ultimate delight in everything but you. Would you help us? We are bent towards sin. We are bent towards idolatry. And we need mercy. Forgive us for thinking of you in creaturely categories. You are beyond all those categories. For you are the infinite creator. Would you help us? We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us 
because he has given us of his spirit. Look at the first part here. Look at the first phrase. By this, we know that we abide in him. A few things I want you to see here. First of all, you can have assurance and knowledge of your salvation, okay? This is something that is a good thing. In Roman Catholicism, you're not allowed to have assurance of your salvation. It is known as the sin of presumption, whereas in Protestantism and in the Bible, you're supposed to have this type of assurance of salvation. You're supposed to know that you're saved. You're supposed to know that you're in him, as this text will say, okay? That is something that you can know and you can be encouraged about. John has been giving us all these proofs of how you know you're a Christian. Do you follow the right version of Jesus? Have you been transformed? Do you repent of your sin? Do you love other Christians, et cetera, et cetera? You can have knowledge of your salvation now. You don't have to wait till judgment day. That shouldn't be like a guessing game for you where you're waiting in line. I don't think there's gonna be a line, but where you're waiting in line to be judged and you're like, man, I wonder how this is gonna go. You can know now whether or not you're a Christian, okay? But hear this, just because you have doubts or just because you have concerns, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. I've heard some really bad preaching in my lifetime, and one of the things I've heard pastors get up and say is they'll say things like this, if you don't know with absolute certainty that you're saved, then you're not. Or they'll get up and say, if you don't know the exact day and hour that you got saved, then you're not. That is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Our faith is not in our ability to believe hard enough. Faith is not certainty. It's certain in God's mind. The truths of the scriptures are certain, but because we're fallible, we don't always see them as certain. And so don't make this logical mistake. To say a Christian can have assurance of salvation does not logically imply if you don't have assurance of salvation, you're not a Christian. Okay, that is a logical fallacy. That's not how those things work. So this text is saying that you can know that you're in him and you should be encouraged, but if you're somebody like me who has an overly sensitive conscience and is often self-condemning, just because you have doubts, just because you have concerns, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. Let me read you a quote from John Calvin that I think is really, that I think is really helpful. <clears throat> he says this, when we stress that faith ought to be certain and secure, we do not have in mind a certainty without doubt, or security without any anxiety. Rather, we affirm that believers have a perpetual struggle with their own lack of faith and are far from possessing a peaceful conscience never interrupted by any disturbance. On the other hand, we want to deny that they may fall out of or depart from their confidence in the divine mercy no matter how much they may be troubled, okay? Faith and assurance means you know that God is faithful on the days where you don't have faith, when you know that God is faithful when you are being faithless. But look at the second part of this little phrase. By this we know that we abide in him. Let's talk about what that means. This kind of language you see a lot in John, okay? He'll talk about us abiding in God, abiding in Christ, being in him. You see this especially in uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul. He'll use this phrase over and over. In Christo is what it is in Greek. In Christ. In Christ this. In Christ this. In Christ this, okay? The idea here is that salvation means that you have fellowship and relationship with God, that you have fellowship and relationship with God. That's what it means to be in him, okay? Let me give you a little demonstration. I've done this before. It's not gonna be something weird like a magic trick. I need a volunteer or nothing like that. A little demonstration that I want to show you that I think is really, really helpful, okay? The Bible, I'm gonna use my Bible as an example. In this illustration, the Bible is gonna stand for Jesus, okay? The the inscripturated word is gonna symbolize the incarnate word, okay? And this little card here, stands for you. You see it? It says you. Make sure it's not upside down. No way or something. Okay, you, okay? Apart from Christ, you are under the wrath and hatred of God. 
Because God demands not that you be good. He demands that you be perfect, which none of us can do because we're all born with this stain of sin. So by ourselves, we are under God's wrath and we are under God's condemnation, okay? When we become a Christian, what God does, the Father, by the power of the Spirit, puts you in Christ, okay? Salvation is a Trinitarian work of God. He puts you in Christ. And now, the status that's true of Christ is true of you. So if I take my Bible, and where are you? You're in it, you're in Christ. If I take this and I put it on the music stand, where are you? In Christ where? On the music stand, okay? What's true of Christ is true of you. If I take it and I put my Bible on the floor, where are you? On the floor, in Christ. If I take my Bible and I give it a big old hug, mm, who also just got the hug? You did. If I take my Bible and I say, Bible, I love you so much, I've also said that of you because you're in Christ. If I give the Bible a kiss, mm, you just got a kiss. If I take the Bible and I put it on a ship, a rocket ship, and send it off to the moon, that's where you are, okay? What's true of Christ with his status is true of you when you are in Christ. Most of our troubles in the Christian life comes from thinking of ourselves apart from Christ. If I look at Zach as Zach, it is very just disturbing and brings about a lot of despair, okay? Because I know what I think. I know what I say when no one's around. I know how bad I am. But you're not allowed to think of yourself apart from Christ. You're now in Christ. So to say it another way, the Father never sees you without his Jesus glasses on. Jesus is loved, you're loved. Jesus is perfect, so you're seen as perfect. Jesus is spotless, so you're seen as spotless. You and God are always cool if you know Christ because the Father and the Son are always cool. Are you with me? So what John is doing in describing salvation is he describes it in terms of relationship and fellowship by saying we can know that we're in him. We can know that we are in him. Now look at this next phrase here. And he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now what does it mean to say that he is in us? Notice that you're doubly secure. You're in Christ and also the spirit is in you. Here's what the idea behind this. Before you become a Christian, you have an engine. You have this thing that drives you, and that engine is self. Before you become a Christian, you are utterly and hopelessly selfish and devoted to self. We have a tendency mainly to think of this division between God and Satan. In the Bible, it's more often God and man. It's more often God and us. So before you become a Christian, we are hopelessly devoted to self. This is my body, this is my life, this is my, these are my dreams, this is my choice, this is the job I want, these are my goals and my personal successes. This is who I want to marry and this is how many kids I want and me, 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 we're just these me monsters because God has wired humanity to be worshipers and if we don't worship God, we will worship something else and usually that something else is ourselves. The primary thing that drives us before we become a Christian is self-worship. All of our thoughts, time, money, and efforts are devoted on us. Even when we're caring for other people, we're doing so to make ourselves look good, to feel better, to feel like we're progressive, to feel like we're enlightened, whatever it may be. When you become a Christian, the third person of the Trinity comes and dwells inside of you, and he changes your heart, and he gives you new life and new affections. Don't get me wrong. You will still struggle with selfishness and sin until you die. But now you have a new engine. You have a new driver. There are desires you previously didn't have that you do now, like you want to love God and you want to love others. And when you read the Bible, it just seems so true now. 
It's not just this old book you're supposed to read in church, but you hear God speaking to you and you love others and something changes in you. And John gives this as an evidence of being a Christian. Martin Luther says this about the Holy Spirit. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me, by, uh, enlightened me by his gifts, and sanctified and preserved me in the true faith. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and preserves it in union with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers, and he will raise me up and all the dead at the last day, and he will grant eternal life to me and to all who believe in Christ. It is all a work of the Spirit transforming your life. He regenerates you, he gives you faith, he preserves you in correct doctrine, orthodoxy is a mark of the Spirit, he grows you in holiness, etc., etc. But I also want you to see this in this last phrase of verse 13, and he and us because he has given us, a, a, us of his Spirit. The Spirit is your primary evidence of salvation, okay? How do you know, what, what is it that makes you a Christian? It's not praying a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart, whatever the heck that means. Nothing of the cross, nothing of resurrection. It's not being baptized. There are a lot of people that have been baptized and that water will bring nothing but steam in the next world. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not trying to be a good person. It's not going to church. What is it that makes you a Christian? It's being born again. It's having the Holy Spirit. He is the sine qua non, the thing without which it is not, of what it means to be a Christian. If you have the Spirit, you're a Christian, and if you don't, you're not. And he's not evidenced by speaking in tongues or flopping on the ground or doing anything weird, but rather he's evidenced by a changed lifestyle. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And John presents this as an objective fact. Here's what I mean by that. He's not saying, here's how you can know you're a Christian. If you feel like you have the Spirit and the Spirit's whispering things into your ear, that's not what he's saying. He's saying this is an objectively true fact. If you're someone who knows Jesus, you have the Spirit, okay? If you know Jesus, you have the Spirit. The Trinitarian work of God always goes together. God works together because there is only one God. But here's what verse 13 is really saying. It's saying this. Having the Spirit is evidence of being a Christian, but this text looks backwards and it looks forwards. This text occurs in a larger dialogue that, uh, or rather monologue that John is having about love. So how can you know you have the Spirit? Well, if you look back a few verses, it's by the fact that you love others. Jeff and Jared have been talking about that over the last few weeks. But this text also looks forward to an evidence of the Spirit, and it's this. Do you confess Christ? Do you confess Christ? Let's look at verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We're going to spend a lot of time in verse 14. Here's my first question for you. Who is the we in that sentence? Look at it again in verse 14. And we. Who's that we? It's the apostles, okay? It's those who've seen and testify about Jesus. It's talking about the apostles. Why is John saying this? John is writing, 1 John, this letter, uh, for several reasons, and one of those reasons is to refute false teachers. 
There have been false teachers that have infiltrated the church and what those false teachers are doing then is the same thing false teachers do today and they preach a new version of Jesus, a new version of the gospel, a new version of Christianity. And so what John has to keep doing is he has to keep going back to what is old. He has to keep going back to the apostolic witness, to John and his community. That's why he said a few verses ago that one of the evidences of being a Christian is that you listen to us, meaning John and the apostles. And so what he's doing here by saying we, he's talking about the apostles, those who've seen and testify about the risen Jesus. Those are the ones who have the correct message. So let me say it this way. Real Christianity appeals to ideas that are old, not ideas that are new. Christianity is not about coming up with new inventions of things. Christianity is about taking something that's old and retaining it. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some new ideas and some new things that humans have thought of that are really good. May I give you a few of those? Technology, okay? Amazon Prime is incredible. If I wanted to buy something in the past, I'd have to, I don't know, get in my covered wagon and go to Walmart and shop for it. And if they didn't have what I wanted, tough. Now I can sit there on my couch with Cheeto-covered fingers and I can have something delivered to my doorstep on the same day. It's witchcraft, it's amazing, okay? It's incredible how that happens. Or medical technology. You know what I love? Anesthesia. You ever seen like a, like a Civil War documentary and some guy's getting his leg hacked off and you think, how did they deal with the pain? They bit down on a belt. They bit down on a bullet. That was medicine. You know how George Washington died? He got sick and the doctors came in and they would do what was called bloodletting, okay? Science had taught at that time that if you have a fever, you gotta get the hot blood out of you. And so they would come and cut you and let you bleed out the hot blood and just hope that the new blood would not be quite so hot, okay? Medical technology is incredible. Modern conveniences are incredible. Air conditioning, oh my gosh, air conditioning. This is why I don't camp, okay? So people ask me, Zach, would you like to go camping with me? And I always give them the same answer, no thank you, okay? Do you know why? Because I don't like pretending to be homeless, which is really what camping is to me. <laughs> the whole reason that I went to college and pay my mortgage is so I don't have to sleep outside. So when somebody comes up and says, hey, we're gonna go camping, and I say, great. I'm for glamping, right, where you have like a trailer and your Xbox and all those kind of things. But when they say, we're gonna sleep on the floor, and there's gonna be a bunch of us in a tent, and it's gonna be too hot or too cold because it's Texas, doesn't that sound like fun? I think, no thanks. I think I'll stay in my home and not sleep outside and get mauled by something, okay? That's what I think. I, it, that is a modern, it's a blessing, okay? If I want the experience of camping, I'll order a tent on Amazon Prime and I will just set it up in my living room and I'll hang out in there for 30 minutes and then I'll watch Netflix and I'll go to bed. It'll be the best, okay? That is a blessing. Style has changed. You ever seen pictures of men from like the Renaissance? They're wearing like stockings and puffy pants and this weird collar. You can't tell what gender they are. They look like these weird marionette puppets. Well, check this out. Jeans, great invention, right? Buffalo wings, well, Zach, we've always had chicken. Yes, but some genius had to invent wing sauce. Some Rhodes scholar had to invent that. There's a lot of good things. I'm not saying all new ideas are bad. What I'm saying is this. New ideas as they relate to God are often bad. New versions of sexuality are bad. New versions of truth are bad. New versions of gender are bad. New versions of uh, certain theological doctrines are bad. Things that are new are typically good. But when it comes to the most important issues in life, we go back. 
we go look and try to retain what we've been given by the apostles. If a belief is not at least, let's say, 400 years old, you probably shouldn't hold it when it comes to theology. I'll just give you a helpful rubric. Not that there couldn't be anything, but uh, the main doctrines, the most important stuff, those are going to be the things that don't change. This is traditionally, by the way, the difference of what it meant to be a conservative or a progressive or liberal. Okay, now, now just hang on a second. I'm not about to say anything regarding politics. So if you're thinking of those terms as far as politics, get that out of your mind. That's not what I'm talking about. To be a conservative, traditionally, when you talk about the conservative tradition, thinkers like Edmund Burke, what it meant was that you believed that truth and goodness were things in the past, and your job was to try to retain them. You liked tradition, you liked the way things were done in the past, and the goal was not to change, but to try to hang on to those things. If you were somebody who believed that truth and goodness were things in the future, you were considered a progressive or a liberal. Why? Because you were trying to progress towards those things. If you were progressive, traditionally speaking, that meant that you thought the way things had been done in the past was not good, and we need to try to come up with something new in the future. In that sense, all Christians, to some extent, are going to be somewhat conservative because Christianity is not about coming up with new forms of Christianity. Christianity is about taking something that's old, taking something that's 2,000 years old that have been handed down to the apostles and hanging on to those things. G.K. Chesterton says this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So what John is doing is he's appealing to his gospel, he's appealing to the apostles. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Why do we teach the Bible? Because this is the prophets and the apostles. They've died, but we have the Old Testament, which are the prophets, and the New Testament, which are the apostles. By the way, when I move and hold my Bible over here, where are you? In Christ, over here. Okay. Jude 3. Beloved, although I was eager, very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for, look at this phrase, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Christianity is not about coming up with new versions of God, new versions of salvation. It's about taking what is old and retaining them. Yes, we appropriate them in a new cultural context, but we do not change the doctrine itself. We change the wrapping paper. We don't change the present, okay? Next, I want you to see this in verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son. Now, let me tell you why this is here, okay? This is a callback to something that Jeff had talked about last week. Look at 1 John 4.10. Look back a few verses. 1 John 4.10 says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and, look at that phrase, sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that takes away wrath for our sins. Here's what John is doing. And by the way, it completely reorients the way that we think about salvation. Most of us, I think, in our day-to-day lives think that Christianity is primarily about how much we love God. It's primarily about how well we're doing. When my head hits the pillow at night, I have a tendency to think through my day and I think, how did I do today? How did I do today? Did I cast off all evil thoughts? Did I read my Bible enough? Did I pray enough? Did I try to witness to anybody, whatever? And when I do that, I'm constantly discouraged because I think I'm still not loving God the way he commands, which is perfect love. I'm not doing that. Every day when I look at myself, again, apart from Christ, what I end up doing is I end up condemning myself. And I think most of us live Christianity this way, where every day we're thinking, I didn't love God like I'm supposed to today. I need to love God more. 
I didn't love God as much as I should have today or I wouldn't have committed that sin. I need to love God more. And here's what this text says. In this is love, not that we have loved God. It reverses the paradigm. But that he loved us. And how do we know? Because verse 10 and verse 14 say this, because he sent Christ. That's God's objective love for you. The way that you know God loves you is not by a feeling. Your feelings will change. They will come and go. It's because Christ has come. It is through the incarnation and through the death and resurrection that you know God loves you. So when you are doubting whether or not God loves you, don't look into yourself and think, I wonder, I feel loved by God or I don't feel loved by God. In that way leads death. Rather, when you think, oh, I don't think God loves me, think to yourself, Jesus came, therefore he does. It's objective, it's a fact. And John is appealing to that here. Now look at this next part here. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Savior? And any time a title is given to Jesus, you need to really pay attention because that's trying to tell you something very important, okay? Whether it calls him Lord or I am or uh, the founder and perfecter of your faith, whatever it might be, this is something that you really need to pay attention to and here it calls Jesus Savior. What does that mean? This is one of those church terms that we use and you ask someone to define it and they don't quite know what it means. What does it mean to call Jesus Savior? Let me ask it this way. What does he save you from? You understand that a savior saves you from something, right? So like if I'm drowning in the pool, which I'm an incredible swimmer, that would never happen, but if I'm drowning in the pool and I'm going to die and someone throws me a lifesaver, they have saved me from something. What have they saved me from? Drowning, from death. When this text says that Jesus is the savior, here's my question, what is the primary thing that he saves you from? Because how you answer this question varies depending on who you're talking to. What some people will do, you especially see this on TBN with some of the prosperity gospel, charismatic movement people, is they'll say the primary thing that we need to be saved from is sickness or inconvenience. That's actually what the Greeks thought in certain places. So the Greeks had a god called Asclepius. He's the Greek god of healing. His symbol, by the way, is a snake. If you've ever seen uh, like a paramedic symbol, it has a snake going around it because of Asclepius. The idea is that a snake sheds its skin and there's new life, so it's a symbol of healing. And we have inscriptions from the Greeks when it comes to Asclepius and his temples and such, and they call him, quote, savior. Is that the primary thing Jesus saves us from? Well, don't get me wrong. Jesus certainly can bring healing. We see people healed not only in the Bible, but as we pray for people today, we see people get healed every now and again. But that's not the primary thing we need to be saved from. You know why? Because whether you're sick or well, you will still die and you will stand before God in judgment. Well, maybe the primary thing that Jesus needs to save us from is political trouble. Oh man, just go online, right? Read different news outlets, follow on social media. They will say the primary problem with mankind is political This is what the Romans thought. Their emperor, Hadrian, we have an inscription where Hadrian is called, quote, the savior of the world. Same language that's being used here of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Christ does bring political order. He brings his kingdom. But that's not the primary thing that we need to be saved from. Well, Zach, maybe it's ignorance. Maybe that's what he saves us from. Maybe he's a savior and he gets us away from ignorance. If we just had better schooling and everyone knew the liberal arts or everyone knew math and science, if we could just, we we could just, educate the ignorance out of people, then all of a sudden, we wouldn't have any more problems. Well, don't get me wrong, Christ does bring knowledge, he is the truth, but that's not the primary thing that we need to be saved from. What was the most educated nation in the world in the 1940s? It was Nazi Germany. Best universities, best thinkers, best primary schools. You see, our problem is not primarily intellectual, it's spiritual, it's spiritual. What does he save us from? Okay, maybe he saves us from being unfulfilled. 
That's a big cultural lie that's going on right now, that, that what you need is you need to feel fulfilled. Pursue your dreams and your goals and your selfish ambitions, and then all of a sudden, you will be happy, and we're surprised when we're not actually happy, and we're all drugged up more than any other generation, but we're not happy. Well, don't, be, don't get me wrong, Christ does bring long-lasting fulfillment, but that's not the primary thing that we need to be saved from. All these are just little symptoms. Maybe it's poverty. Maybe if we just got rid of all the poverty, we would not have any more trouble. Well, don't get me wrong, Christ does bring eternal riches, but that's not the primary thing that we need to be saved from. A poor person can go to hell just like a rich person can go to hell. That's, not, that's an issue, that's not the issue. Maybe it's racism. Maybe the primary thing we need to be saved from is racism. Now, don't get me wrong, racism is a sin. Christ has come to unite Jew and Gentile. But that's not the primary thing that we need to be saved from, that's just a thing. Maybe it's sexual repression. Maybe if we could just act out on our sexual impulses and we could think about gender, whatever we want to think about it, then maybe that would solve mankind's problem. Well, don't get me wrong, Christ does teach an appropriate sexual ethic and he does teach an appropriate view of gender, but that's not the primary thing that we need to be saved from. That was Sigmund Freud's idea, that if you could just uh, not have these things be repressed, these sexual urges, then you could live a fulfilled life. Okay, Zach, what else could it be? What else is a controversial hot topic? Environmental pollution. Maybe that's what Jesus has come to save us from. Now, don't get me wrong. We should be good stewards of what God has given us. And Christ will one day bring a new heavens and new earth. But that's not the primary thing that we need to be delivered from. Well, maybe it's sexism. Maybe the biggest problem in the world is toxic masculinity. And what we need to be saved from is any type of sexism. Don't get me wrong. Christ does unite men and women as equal followers of Christianity. But that's not the primary thing that we need to be saved from. That's just an issue. Zach, what about income inequality? Maybe that's mankind's biggest problem. Maybe that's what we need to be saved from is income inequality. Let's just take all the money and give everyone an equal share of that. And 10 years from then, no one else will be poor and everyone will still have the same amount of money. Okay? Not only does Jesus say the poor you'll have with you always, not only does God give people different levels of talents, let me say it this way, God likes income inequality, which is why he commands you not to covet. He doesn't want you all having the same things. He wants you to learn how to be content with what he has given you. But that is not the primary thing that Christ has come to save us from. What has Christ primarily come to save us from? Are you ready? From the damning eternal wrath of God. That's the problem. Fix those other issues and still go to hell, and that's not a win. God has come, or Christ has come, the second person of the Trinity, to fulfill what we should have done, to keep the law, to die for our sins, to be resurrected. Let me say it as strongly as I can. For a sinner, your biggest problem is God. He is the problem. When you're a sinner and he's infinite and perfect, that's the problem. But look at me. God is also the solution. Not only is he your problem when you're a sinner, but he is also the one who is the solution. That it is God who you stand under the condemnation of God, but it is also God, the second person of the Trinity, who comes down to reconcile you. Mankind's biggest problem is not all these other things. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of those other things are bad, evil, whatever it might be. But the primary thing when the Bible calls Jesus Savior is that he saves us from our sins. He saves us from the wrath of God. He saves us from us. Let me, let me say it this way. You are not the solution. God is the solution. You and I are the problem. Okay? Nobody has hurt you more than you. Nobody has lied to you more than you. Nobody has made bad decisions for your life more than you. We're the problem. 
When you get up in the morning and you're brushing your teeth, looking at the mirror, you're looking at the problem. When you go and put your pants on, you put your pants on the problem. When you get in your car and adjust your little rearview mirror, there's the problem staring back at you in sunglasses. You go to work and the problem sends emails. You feed the problem during lunch. The problem drives back home and causes a bunch of problems, okay? That's us. Christ has come as savior, which means he's delivered us from the thing we most need to be delivered from, the wrath of God. Yes, those other things are important, but they're not primary. Don't make them primary. Avoid people who try to make the gospel primarily a social gospel. The real gospel is vertical. It's about God and man. The real gospel is not primarily horizontal about man and man. That's an implication of the gospel, but that's secondary. Stop focusing on that. The focus is here. If you get this right, you'll naturally do this right. If you have a relationship with God, you'll naturally care for the poor, love others, encourage others, put sin to death, whatever it might be. Fourth thing I want you to see. What does it mean to say that he is the savior of the world? The savior of the world, okay? A few things to say about this. First of all, when it says that Christ is the savior of the world, that does not mean that everyone in the world is saved. You understand that? That doesn't mean everyone in the world is saved. This is also not a verse teaching a doctrine that we would disagree with here at Parkway in our Minion view of salvation, which says that Christ actually atoned for the sins of people that would never follow him what's called, uh, what's called uh, unlimited atonement or universal redemption, okay? That's not what this text is teaching. Let me get on my soapbox for a second because I feel like I have to have this conversation four times a week with people. So everybody hear this. What determines the meaning of a word? Don't say a dictionary. I will throw something at you if you say a dictionary. Webster is not God. He doesn't just get to pick what words mean. That's backwards. A dictionary takes how society's already using words and then puts them in there. They don't determine the meaning. They just record the meanings that are already there. A dictionary just gives you a range of possible meanings. Where you get the meaning of a word is in context. Think of the word run. You can run for office. You can go for a run. Your nose can run. You can be a drug smuggler and go on a run. We even have the joke where we call someone and we say, is your refrigerator running? Then you better go catch it. Well, you can't look up in a dictionary and say, running means sprinting. Ah, you get the joke because that's not how language works. It is context that determines the meaning of a word. So when the Bible uses the terms like world or all or every, you can't just say things like all means all. That sentence means nothing, okay? You have to say, what does this word mean in context? I'll give you a few examples. If I were to say this, are you going to the party tonight Everyone is going to be there. Everyone? You think seven billion people will be at my party? People from the past, Joan of Arc will be there. Gandhi will be there. It says everyone. No, because the context means a bunch of people. Anyone who's anyone will be at my party. Something like that, okay? Or let's say I work in real estate and I'm selling a house and I put a sign on the door that says, open house, all are welcome. All? Like serial killers, convicts, Tim. Not everyone can come to the open house. I mean something like people who are looking to buy a house and who are normal, okay? So notice that words don't get their meaning from a dictionary. That just gives you a range of possible meanings. The specific meaning comes from how it's used in context. And in this context, it is not saying Jesus saves everyone, nor is it saying he's intending to die for all these people that he has not elected. That doesn't make any sense logically or biblically. Here's what this text is saying. That if you want to be saved, there is no other savior but him. 
the savior for the world, the world's only option is Jesus. That's what it means. Let me say it this way. Let's say I invented a cure for cancer. By the way, if you're in the medical field, I need you to get on that, okay? I know it's difficult. Keep, keep forging ahead. Millions of people are dying. You don't do anything to catch it. It just happens, and there is no surefire cure, okay? We have some procedures that work better than others, et cetera, but I need you to get that figured out, okay? Because I'm getting older, and I need you to do that. Work on that. Pray for that. Pray that God gives us a cure. Pray that that would be a common grace. There's no cure right now, though, where you can just take a vaccine or take a pill, and no matter what level of cancer you have, it just goes away, okay? 100% of the time. That doesn't exist yet. But let's say that I invent it, okay? Let's say I invent a universal cure for all types of cancer. Let's call it Zacamil, okay? Create Zacamil, and I say this. I say, this is the cure for all. Does that mean that no one else will die of cancer? No, people that don't take the cure will die from cancer. If I say this is the cure for all and other people hear about it but decide not to try it, will they still die? Yes, they will still die. What do I mean by that? What I mean is there is one surefire cure for cancer and this is the only one. That's what this text is doing by calling Jesus the savior of the world. There is not another option. There is not another savior. Paul condemns those who preach, quote, a different Jesus, meaning not the real Jesus of the Bible, but some new made up Jesus. It also means this, that Jesus is the savior of all, not without exception, but without distinction. He saves Jew and Gentile. He saves male and female. He saves black and white. He saves, uh, he saves rich and poor. He saves educated and uneducated. Do you see here where he's called the savior of the world? You know another place that occurs in the New Testament? It occurs in the Gospel of John, and you know who says it? The Samaritans, the non-Jews. These Samaritans were like these heretical, half-breed kind of Jews that the Jews rejected. They were not those in the covenant. And who is it that properly understands what Jesus has come to do? The Samaritans. The Samaritans are the one that called Jesus the Savior of the world. So you're supposed to see this, uh, this ethnic dimension. Not that Christ saves all without exception, but that he saves all without distinction. That he saves all without distinction. Well, let me give you the conclusion, and then I want to pastor you a little bit now that I've yelled at you. I'll pastor you a little bit through this. Here's really what this text means, and it's very simple, so I want to focus on one aspect. Here's what the text means. You can know you're a Christian if you have the Spirit, which is evidenced by love and evidenced by whether or not you confess Christ, okay? That's simply what this text means. That's Christianity 101. So to end, I want to focus on something that I think maybe we move past too quickly as we talk about Christ being Savior, okay? theologically, when you become a Christian, your status, the way God sees you, is no longer as a sinner, but as a saint. In God's eyes, you are perfect, loved, spotless. Everything is okay. Guess why? Because you're in Christ. That is your status. Your status before God is that you are not a sinner, but a saint. Everybody got me on that? Because I'm about to say something harsh. When it comes, though, to your day-to-day -day life, you and I are still radically devoted to sin. Not in God's eyes. We've been declared to be something that we're not because Christ was that thing, which is righteous. We, however, in our day-to-day -day lives are overwhelmingly sinful and overwhelmingly broken. And here's where I think that we've done Christianity backwards for a lot of us. We spend most of our lives, most of our Christian lives, thinking that the goal is to not be a sinner. Like we're surprised every day when we wake up and we're still not loving God like we should. We're surprised how slowly we've grown in our sanctification, etc. The focus in Christianity is not that you're not a deplorable sinner. That's a given. 
the focus in Christianity is that you have a great Savior. As it's been said, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. So listen to what I'm about to say. It is true that you can grow in holiness. Sanctification is not a myth. I know guys who used to have a really dirty mouth and now their language is cleaned up. I know guys who used to sleep around and now they walk in sexual fidelity. I know guys who used to get in fights all the time and were super angry and now they're chill. You can grow some in holiness, okay? But you need to hear what I'm about to say. You, even though you've grown a little bit in holiness, you are still primarily at your deepest desires, primarily as you walk day to day, devoted to sin and so am I. Let me say it this way. When I first became a Christian, when I got saved, here's how I thought it would work. I thought that, okay, I'll never reach perfection. The Bible's clear. You don't reach perfection this side of eternity. You will when you die, but you don't, you're not perfectly holy this side of eternity. But I thought this. I thought if I get saved and I work really hard, by the time I die, I'll be 90% sanctified. Anyone else kind of think that? You've been a Christian for a long time and you think, yeah, I'm basically there. I think how it really works is you get saved and you fight tooth and nail to fight sin, to study the Bible, to grow in holiness. And by the time you die, you're like 10% sanctified, okay? If you're someone in here and you think that you're even like 40% sanctified, I think you're delusional. I don't think you understand what the Bible says about how evil you are in your flesh. That's not your status. Your status is perfect. So here's why this is a great comfort. What we wanna do is we wanna not be so sinful. We don't wanna be sinners and need a savior. We just don't wanna be sinners. That's not how Christianity works. I want you to lean into both. Not to commit sin, but to know how sinful you are. Lean into the fact that you're awful and lean into the fact that Christ saves those who are awful. We wanna not be awful, that's not an option. The option is to have someone who loves those who are sinners, who loves those who are awful. Jeff said this last week and it was so freeing. He said, when you come to realize how wicked you actually are, there's a lot of freedom in that. Because now you get to get rid of the facade of being the good little Christian boy or girl. Because the Bible says you're not that. Anytime I meet somebody that seems overly nice, I think that person's murdered someone. That's what I think. Because the Bible teaches that we are broken, that we are sinful, that we are depraved. So here's why I say this. If you're somebody who thinks like me, which is this, when you're looking around in worship, you're thinking, man, I'm just such a sinner. Christianity seems easy for everybody but me. Take heart, because we all feel that way. And Christ has come to save sinners. If you say, Zach, I'm not a little sinner, I'm a a big sinner. I know, Christ came to save big sinners. Let me read you a few verses that let, let them just be like cold water for your parched soul. Mark 2, 17. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. John 3.17, which most people ignore, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. If you're saying, but Zach, I'm just such a sinner, take heart, that's who Jesus died for. The focus on Christianity is not on you being better, It's on how great Christ is, okay? Now, don't put up the quote yet, but in just a second, I'm gonna read a quote uh, to you from Martin Luther. And I love this quote. I love this quote. I snuggle this quote. I I want you to love this quote as as much as I do. Print it out, put it on your mirror, get it tattooed on your back. It's an excellent quote. In this quote, what Luther is doing is he is writing a letter to his buddy named Philip, who's a pastor at another church. And Philip is feeling super discouraged because he struggles with sin, The people in his church struggle with sin. He struggles with sin. And he's just thinking to himself, I mean, I'm a pastor. I still have bad thoughts. I still have bad language. I still commit bad actions. Most of the time I love myself more than God. What am I supposed to do? 
Now, what letter would you have written Philip? I think many of us would have written Philip a letter that goes something like this. Philip, don't beat yourself up. You're actually doing pretty great. But that's not what Luther does. Luther knows the Bible better than that. And here's what he says. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Now, pause for a second there. Jesus didn't come for your little ticky-tacky, I might kind of be a sinner, but not really. If you're a big sinner, that's who Jesus died for. He didn't come to save imaginary sinners. He came to save real sinners. So be a sinner and sin boldly. Let me explain what that means, okay? Luther is not saying to go actually commit sin. He's not saying what they say in Romans 6, shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Yes. His point is, Philip, stop deluding yourself. Stop thinking that you're actually good. Lean into the fact that you are depraved and lean into the fact that sometimes you don't love God and lean into the fact that this is who you are. Be a sinner and sin boldly. Look at this next part. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Do you believe this next line? No sin can separate us from him. Even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day, do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? So pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. Isn't that good? I want you to grow in holiness. I'm not saying run out and pursue sin at all. What I'm saying is that just about everyone in here is pursuing sanctification the wrong way. The way you grow in holiness is not by trying harder in your own strength to be holy. It's by focusing on the Savior. It's by looking at Jesus. Get your eyes on Jesus and those other things will naturally happen. Do you have to discipline yourself to do things that you love? If you love watching football, you don't have to set your alarm to do that. You'll naturally do it. If you love something that's sinful or evil, you naturally do it. Well, the same is true in Christianity. Know how much you're loved by God and you'll want to read the Bible. You'll want to pray. So don't go out and intentionally sin. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying if you intentionally sin, God still loves you. He still forgives you. What I'm saying is the way you pursue holiness is not by doing what we've all been told growing up, which is trying harder. Rather, the way you grow in holiness is realizing you are a depraved sinner and you have a savior that just so happens to love depraved sinners. Let's pray as those helping serve communion come forward for the elements. Father, we come before you and we thank you that you sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the evidence that you love us. The evidence that you are on the side of humanity is that you've sent a savior for the world, for anyone that wants him. Now the problem is though that we don't want him. That nobody seeks for God, no not one. And so you have to change our hearts and you do so by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. He is the evidence that we are Christians and we are saved. Would you help us? We do want to be a church that's holy, but we know that we won't find that by trying harder. We'll only find that by resting better. Would you help us believe those truths? We want to ask all of it in Christ's name. Amen.